It's actually 94,000, not 9,400. Um, and that's important because, um, it's a good segue to what I'm going to say next. Uh, we're in a, a sermon series called Restoring Sexual Sanity, which is raising all kinds of questions, great questions, and we want to answer those questions. We can't do it Sunday morning. So if you will text uh, GCF question, that phrase, to 94,000, we're going to compile all those questions and then answer them on our, our weekly podcast. So as the series unfolds and as we talk about lots of controversial things, uh, please send us your questions so we can address those um, on the podcast. So where are we in this series? Uh, let's go back to that first slide. This is part three in the series. First one uh, was marriage, then singleness, and this morning is masculinity or biblical um, manhood. If you're new, we usually preach through books of the Bible, but we're taking a break from consecutive exposition uh, to talk about some really important culturally relevant issues, and nothing's more relevant right now uh, than gender and sexuality. With that in mind, uh, let me pray once again and ask for God's blessing on this sermon. Father, we are so thankful for your many, many blessings. Thank you for the songs that we just sang. Father, thank you for Jesus, who forgives all of our sins and makes us righteous in your sight. Father, we also thank you that because of Jesus, we can be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. I pray, Spirit of God, that you would descend upon us now and give each one of us the gift of understanding. Lord, help us to understand what the Bible says about this morning's vital topic. And I pray that you would help me to only say what you want me to say this morning, nothing more and nothing less. And I pray all this in Jesus' mighty name, amen. The killer was 28-year-old Ian David Long. He was a college dropout, former Marine, unemployed, divorced, and living with his mother. He knew that the Borderline Bar and Grill held a weekly college night when it would be crowded with young people, he entered the bar dressed in black, a hood pulled over his head. Tossing smoke grenades into the crowd to create confusion, he drew out a pistol with a laser sight and started shooting. A sergeant from the sheriff's office rushed over to help, but the shooter was waiting for him. After killing the sergeant and 12 other people, Ian shot himself. Now, immediately after this incident, the media blamed this violence on toxic masculinity. But more and more, anything in our culture that is masculine is considered toxic, making all things masculine or male evil. Maybe you don't believe me. Let me provide you with a little bit of evidence. In the recent and insanely successful Barbie movie, Ken is a character with no professional abilities. His job is, quote, just beach. While the Barbies are doctors, politicians, and Nobel Prize winners, he just gets in Barbie's way. The message is obvious. All men are irrelevant or idiots. Books have appeared with titles like, I Hate Men, The End of Men, and Are Men Necessary? Universities, as many of you know, are hotbeds of anti-male sentiment. An article in USA Today says this, at today's universities, masculinity is almost never discussed except in negative terms, usually with the word toxic attached. The author of the book, Refusing to Be a Man, says this, 
Talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. The best-selling science fiction writer Hugh Howie tweeted, testosterone is the problem. Women should be in charge of everything, like in the Barbie movie. A media researcher named Jim McNamara conducted an extensive content analysis of more than 2,000 mass media portrayals of men, including news, feature articles, talk shows, and so on. He found that more than 75% of all media represents representations of men portray them as villains, aggressors, perverts, and philanderers. In light of our culture's growing hatred of men, boys are in serious trouble. And I mean serious trouble. They're failing in school like never before. Bookstore shelves are filling up with titles such as The Boy Crisis, Boys Adrift, The Trouble with Boys, and Why Boys Fail. They're no longer earning advanced degrees. One scholar makes this point. Males are falling behind in higher education as well. Female students now outnumber males on university campuses by about 60 to 40%. Women are more likely to earn a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, or a doctoral degree. Even professional schools now have more women in fields from law to veterinary medicine. And great for the women, but where are the men? Yet ironically, even as women outperform men in college, virtually every campus has a women's studies department directed at deconstructing male power. And all the while, men are failing all around us. A 2020 survey found that parents today are more worried about their sons growing up to be successful adults than they are about their daughters. And they have right to be worried. In addition, men are dropping out of marriage. For the first time in U.S. history, less than 50% of American men are married. And that spells disaster long-term in our culture. In 1970, about 15% of American adults between the ages of 25 and 50 were single. Today, the number is over 50% and growing. Furthermore, men are dropping out of work. This next stat is amazing. One scholar makes this point, men's workforce participation has dropped to Depression-era levels. It doesn't show up in unemployment stats because many men have stopped looking for work. This hurts everyone, this perspective on men in our culture. One scholar writes this, when an educated culture routinely denigrates masculinity and manhood, then women will be perpetually stuck with boys who have no incentive to mature or to honor their commitments. And that's exactly what's happening in our culture. Finally, this last stat is also deadly, no pun intended. Men are dying prematurely. One scholar writes this, in recent years, men's life expectancy has even gone down, while women's has remained the same. The new scientist says, being male is now the single largest demographic factor for early death. Men are in big trouble in our culture. There's a male crisis. Our culture despises masculinity. As a result, men are increasingly confused about their own identity. They have no clue what it means to be a man. When they think they figured it out, culture just denigrates them. So into this vast sea 
of confusion, the Bible brings crystal clarity. And I have one point this morning. It's very simple. This is my point. Biblical masculinity is really, really, really good. When men are masculine in a biblical sense, all of society flourishes. And when men don't embrace their God-given roles, societies flounder. Important disclaimer, yes, some men are jerks. And yes, toxic masculinity and machismo is a thing, and it's a bad thing. Let's all just agree on that. But biblical masculinity is wonderful, and it leads to human flourishing. I want to look at four words this morning, four statements, four points this morning, assumptions, definitions, models, and then application. First, Assumptions. I'm making several important assumptions this morning that I want to state up front. Number one, there are only two genders. Genesis chapter one and two says that God created two genders, Adam and Eve, male and female. And I'm going to spend a whole sermon defending that premise in a couple of weeks from the Bible and from biology. So come back in a few weeks if you think that statement is nonsense. Furthermore, men and women are equal, equal in worth equal in dignity, equal in value. In addition, men and women are different. A massive lie has been foisted upon us since the 1960s, and it says that male and female are the same in pretty much every category. And this is a massive lie. Every culture in the world up until the last few seconds of world history has agreed that male and female are different. And that's a good thing. And these wonderful differences are programmed into us biologically. And I'll spend a lot more time on this next week when I talk about femininity and biblical womanhood. But for now, here's a sneak peek on some of the biological differences between male and female. Because of testosterone, men are typically larger, stronger, and faster than women. In general, they're also more physical, more competitive, and more risk-taking. The average male has more than 60 to 90% upper body strength than the average female, which is why the average male can do a lot more pull-ups than the average female. Women have more estrogen and oxytocin than men. These are bonding hormones that equip mothers uh, psychologically for their caretaking function in the family. Women have much stronger language skills than men, and they read social cues much better than men. Right, women? Females also hear and smell better than men. These are simple facts of biology. And there are many, many others I'll go over next week. Male and female are different. And my final assumption is this. The difference between male and female should be celebrated, not embarrassed. We shouldn't be embarrassed about these differences. I love to listen to Chopin's uh, solo piano music. It's fantastic. It's beautiful. How many of you like Chopin? Raise your hand, okay? A lot of you do. I love Chopin. But I like even better listening to Beethoven's fifth, sixth, and ninth symphony. Why? Because in those symphonies, you have a variety of instruments, violins, pianos, cellos, oboes, all coming together, retaining their specific sounds, but creating beautiful harmony. In a similar sense, 
when we recognize that male and female are different. They come together and they create beautiful harmony with their differences. No one ever says, what's better, piano or violin? Because they're both wonderful. They're both essential for Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And they work together creating wonderful melodies and harmonies. In a similar sense, male and female working together with their differences create wonderful melody and harmony. With those assumptions in mind, we can now move on to definitions. So first, assumptions. Second, definitions. How does our culture define masculinity? Well, in our culture, the masculine man is athletic. He is physically strong, domineering, ruggedly handsome, independent, and gun-toting. He never, ever drinks light beer. He wears a wife beater at least once a week, or at least when he's mowing the grass. He likes to camp, hunt, fish, play football, and lift weights. He drives a huge truck with a lift kit, changes his own oil, and he loves country music, and he has serious riz with the ladies. But is this how the Bible defines masculinity? Hardly. How do, how do Christians from the Bible define masculinity? Consider a few definitions. One scholar says this, masculinity is the glad, sacrificial assumption of responsibility. It's a good definition. Another group writes this, masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to tend God's creation, provide for and protect others, and express loving, sacrificial leadership in particular contexts prescribed by God's word. And John Piper says this, he defines masculinity as, quote, a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. Now from these definitions and many others, we can compile, I think, a good helpful definition of masculinity. So what does it mean to be masculine? Or who is the ideal man? Masculinity is the glad assumption of responsibility for leadership, provision, and protection. I'll say it again. Masculinity is the glad, joyful assumption of responsibility for leadership, for provision, and for protection. Now, we could say a lot more about it, but I think that's the essence of it. And we see all three of those things, leadership, provision, and protection, in the opening chapters of the Bible. In Genesis 1 and 2, where we see the first man and women, we see um, evidence of these three things in Adam, leadership, provision, and protection. Let's look at each one of those from Genesis 1 and 2. So a masculine man, first and foremost, leads. Well, how do we know that Adam, the first man, was called to a leadership role? Well, there's several clues or indicators that I mentioned a few weeks ago uh, that Adam was called to lead in the garden. Like what? Well, Adam was created first, then Eve, suggesting he had a leadership role. First Timothy 2 bears this out. Uh, Eve was created as Adam's helper. More on that next week, Genesis 2.18. Then Adam named Eve, and Eve, uh, naming was a symbol of authority in the ancient Near East. The human race was named man, coming from the word Adam, not woman. 
and is represented by Adam and uh, not Eve in Romans chapter five. After the fall, God holds Adam, not Eve, responsible for what happened in the garden when they ate the forbidden fruit. So how should we lead as men? How was Adam supposed to lead? Well, he was supposed to lead spiritually. This was just alluded to in Genesis 1 and 2. The New Testament tells husbands to wash their wives with the water of the word. Ephesians 5, 26. He must lead his wife in fulfilling together the cultural mandate. In Genesis uh, chapter 1, God tells Adam and Eve to rule and subdue creation and to be fruitful and multiply. And God gave this command to Adam, especially the first part, before Eve was created. So yes, they fulfill it together. Adam primarily is called to rule and subdue creation. And Eve helps by filling creation with offspring, which is an incredible privilege and blessing for women. But together they fulfill the cultural mandate and, and Adam is called to lead Eve in this. They work together side by side, fulfilling what God has called them to. He also must lead by dying. Right after the husband is called the head in Ephesians 5, the apostle Paul tells husbands that they must take up their crosses and die to themselves like Christ died to himself to love and serve his bride, the church. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. A masculine man is always asking the question, what can I do to sacrificially love and serve my family? How can I help them be more like Jesus as I take up my cross and suffer and die? He must also lead in romance and tenderness and care. 1 Peter 3.7 Peter says this, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Probably there the idea is she is physically weaker. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The, the masculine man honors his wife physically, romantically, emotionally, financially. He's caring for her. He's tender and kind with her. And honoring her may involve going for long walks, gifts, vacations, holding hands, opening doors, quality time, writing poetry, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Writing poetry, Dave, really? <laughs> Read Song of Songs. Read Song of Songs. He must lead his family in discipline and instruction. Ephesians 6:4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The Apostle Paul is giving fathers specific instruction to lead their families, to disciple their children and train them. James Dobson called masculine leadership America's greatest need. And he says this, a Christian man is obligated to lead his family to the best of his ability. If his family has purchased too many items on credit, then the financial crunch is ultimately his fault. If the family never reads the Bible or seldom goes to church on Sunday, God holds the man to blame. If the children are disrespectful and disobedient, the primary responsibility lies with the father, not his wife. In my view, America's greatest need is for husbands to begin guiding their families rather than pouring over physical or pouring every physical and emotional resource into the mere acquisition of money. A masculine man leads. In addition, 
a masculine man provides. He leads and he provides. Again, back to Genesis chapter 2 and 2.15, Adam is placed in the garden before Eve to work the garden, that is to provide food for himself from the garden. This was his primary calling, to provide. In Genesis 3.16-19, God cursed Adam and Eve's primary callings. What does God say to Adam? Because of your sin, your calling, working in the field, is going to be hard. Work is going to be laborious. There's going to be sweat and grit and tears. And Eve, what's going to be cursed for you, your primary calling? Childbearing. God curses both of their primary callings uh, in Genesis 3, 16 to 19. In the New Testament, men are still called to lead by providing. 1 Timothy 5, 18, the Apostle Paul says this, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he, not she, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A masculine man works hard to provide for his family, not only money, but he also provides love, physical presence, romance for his wife, affection, discipline for his children, support, direction for his entire family. It's not wrong for a woman to work outside the home or even to make lots of money. But the man should feel this burden more than the woman. There's not enough money to pay the bills. The man should feel the primary burden to provide, not the woman. Yes, she can help. But a masculine man provides, he hustles, he's ambitious, not passive. He goes out and he gets skills and education to make more money to take care of his family needs. Some theologians call this the Puritan hustle. The Puritans, back in the 17th century, worked really, really hard. They had a robust Christian worldview. And the husbands thought it was their responsibility to go out and innovate and work hard and provide well for their families. The Puritan hustle. Guys, get out there and hustle. This is not your wife's responsibility, it's yours. The masculine man has a plan to get out of debt. He has a plan to save for the future. He has a plan to invest his resources wisely for the kingdom. He provides well. He provides well. A masculine man leads. He provides. In addition, a masculine man protects. In Genesis 1 and 2, It was Adam's job to protect his wife, and he failed miserably. If you read the story carefully, it's very, very clear that Adam was right there with Eve when the serpent showed up, and he watched passively as Eve ate the fruit. He failed miserably to protect his wife. As I said two weeks ago, 10,000 marital conflicts are the result of male passivity. And later, God holds Adam on Eve accountable for not protecting his wife from the servant. A masculine man protects his wife and kids from physical danger, moral danger, sexual sin, pornography, evil friends, and evil worldviews. It's his job to protect his family. He uses his strength to protect, not to bully, but to protect. Now, many years ago, before we had kids, my wife and I were lying awake late at night in our apartment in St. Louis. 
And we kept hearing this bizarre, loud, scraping noise. And we ignored it, even though we were both terrified. (laughs) The same thing happened night two. It sounded like someone was dragging an axe or a sword across our concrete basement floor below us. And so, again, we were both a little terrified. And so, what do you think I did? Do you think I said, hey, Heidi, can you go check on that for me? (laughs) No, of course not. Any man that does that is not very masculine. And so I got out of bed, a little terrified, walked out of my room, walked down the basement steps very slowly, praying with a flashlight in hand, and guess what it was? Somehow, a rabbit got into our basement, and the rabbit was pushing a laundry basket across the floor repeatedly, (laughs) and it sounded just like an axe. But the point is, we all know intuitively that it's the man's job to get up and check on the scary noise. Because it's the man's job to protect. Masculinity is the glad assumption of responsibility for leadership, provision, and protection. Objections. Dave, doesn't emphasizing masculinity and male headship lead to abuse. Now, I had all kinds of quotes. I don't have time to read that basically argued that. Actually, the opposite is true. The men that attend a conservative church at least three times a month shatter the stereotypes. According to one scholar, they are more loving to their wives and more emotionally engaged with their children than any other group in America. They're the least likely to divorce and have the lowest levels of domestic abuse and violence. Research has found that evangelical Protestant men who attend church regularly are the least likely of any group in America to commit domestic violence. In other words, the Christian worldview works. It leads to human flourishing. One scholar says this, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives, fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. And again, when you do things God's way, it works, it leads to robust human flourishing and the protection and safety of women and children. Maybe you're thinking, biblical masculinity still seems hard to pin down, Can you give me any examples or models? And that brings us to the third point. So first, assumptions, second, definitions, and third, models. Are there any good, compelling models of masculinity? Actually, there's a perfect model of masculinity, and his name is Jesus. Jesus was the most masculine, manly man to ever live. There's never been anyone as masculine as Jesus, led by the Spirit and in obedience to the Father, Jesus was the perfect man. Yet, he wept, he cried, he served, he loved children, he had friends, he never drove a pickup truck or wore a wife beater that I know of. He led people where they did not want to go, he died for his enemies, he loved his mother, 
And he spoke with authority, rebuking hypocrites, and he also created a whip and turned over money tables. He cast out demons, and he'll return someday riding a war horse. He was the most masculine man to ever live. He was the perfect leader, provider, and protector. How? He was a perfect leader. Jesus has more followers than anyone else in world history. Billions of people have followed Jesus. He leads us tenderly. He leads us away from the destructive effects of sin. He leads us to eternal life. He leads us to the Father. He leads us to the best possible places. He's a good leader. He is also a perfect provider. He provides you and I with every good thing to enjoy. Food and water and shelter and cowboy pizza from Papa Murphy's and Diet Mountain Dew. All those things come from Jesus. He's a provider. Every good thing, the Bible says, comes from God. Every good thing. More importantly, he provides us with the things we need most, forgiveness, justification, reconciliation to God, cleansing from all the guilt and stain of all of our sins. He provides us with adoption and he provides us with eternal life. He is by far, without question, the best provider to ever live. He's also the perfect protector. What does he protect us from? He protects us from a life of utter futility. He protects us from the devastating consequences of sin. He protects us from eternal conscious torment in hell. He protects us from the wrath of his own father. And he protects us from the grip of Satan. He is the perfect leader and provider and protector. He was never passive. He actively served us every second of his life by perfectly fulfilling all of the law's demands on our behalf. And unlike the first Adam, who passively watched his bride sin, Jesus, the last Adam, refused to stand by passively while we sinned. Instead, he assumed responsibility joyfully for all of our guilt and shame, went to the cross, and suffered and died for us. He was never, ever passive. Passive, lazy men, that means there's hope for us. The most masculine man in the world gladly assumed the responsibility for your sins, which means that you can be cleansed for all the times that you stood by passively or shirked responsibility or ignored your wife or your children or didn't protect, didn't lead, and didn't provide. All those sins are atoned for because Jesus was the perfectly masculine man. He provided, he led, and he protected. What does all this mean for us? Well, this brings us to the fourth and final point. Assumptions, definitions, models, and then finally, 
application. Let me address a few different groups of people this morning. First are the young men. Young men, you are called to lead. You're a man. Lead at crossroads, lead in your classroom, rush to the hardest task, embrace the difficult challenge, embrace responsibility, get up on time, do your homework. One scholar says this, the man who is cultivating biblical masculinity will not allow things like term papers, taxes, or project deadlines to rule him. He will exercise dominion over them by doing them in a timely manner which means that paper that's to do on Tuesday, boys. Provide, start saving money now. Learn how to work hard, and I mean work really hard. Learn the skills of financial management. It's never too young to start investing in the future. Follow the script, young men. What's the script? Finish high school. Go off and get a skill or a degree so that you can provide well for your family. Pursue a career, not a job. Find a godly young lady. See if she wants to help you fulfill the cultural mandate. Propose to her, marry her, make lots of babies, and lead those babies and your wife to church every Sunday. That's the script. The Bible says in Genesis 1 and 2, be fruitful and multiply. Rule and subdue the earth. Protect, protect the purity of your sisters in Christ. Protect your mother's honor. Protect your sister's honor. Protect your younger brother's honor. Protect the weak and the vulnerable. Protect and defend the truth of sacred scripture. Family men, older men, you too are called to lead, provide, and protect. Lead the discipline of your children. Lead in family worship. Lead them to church every Sunday. And I could easily go off right now on our cultures, our Christian cultures, absolutely abysmal church attendance records. Something has changed in our culture. Has the Bible changed? No. Our culture's changed. And people think that coming to this church three or four times a year means they're part of this church. You're not. You're not. If you love Jesus, you'll love the people of God and gathering with the saints on the Lord's day. Make that a priority. Husbands, lead your families to church. Don't let sports get in the way all the time. Can you miss on occasion? Yes, you can miss on occasion. But if you're gone half the time, you are not leading your family. Lead them to church, bring them on the Lord's day. Provide. Provide well for your family without neglecting your family. Be ambitious in your career for the glory of God. John Wesley used to say when it comes to money, he said, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Make a lot of money and give it away for the glory of God. Be ambitious. Provide the romance and service your wife needs. Provide your family with quality time. Provide your family with a a compelling example of humility and godliness. And then protect. Protect your wife from being disrespected by your children. Protect your children from ungodly influence. Protect your children from porn and your kids from predators. Be wise. Protect your children from a hostile secular worldview. 
and protect your children from ungodly friends. Young women, don't settle for a man you don't respect. Wait for a man that is able to lead himself, provide for himself, and protect others. At the same time, don't expect a 23-year-old man to be as spiritually mature as 65-year-old John Piper or Tim Keller. Be realistic. But don't settle for a man who has no plans. Wait for a masculine man who loves the church and has ambitions and goals and says, would you come with me and follow me on this plan that God has given me? Older women, if your husband is abusing you in any way, verbally, emotionally, or psychologically, please tell the elders. We want to help protect you. We want to help your husband stop abusing you. Please come to us. All men, repent where necessary. Fully embrace responsibility. Take responsibility for yourself for your family, your church, your work, your city, and your nation, and don't make excuses. Resist passivity with all your might. Step toward the challenge. Do the hard task first. Run into the burning building. Ask what needs to be done, and by the grace of God, do it. Get up in the morning and work out so that you can be around in a long time to serve others. Don't work out to get swole. Don't do curls for the girls or flies to get fly. Work out so that you can be around and serve others with your strength. Get in shape. Your body's a temple. And again, do that for the sake of serving others. Have that hard conversation. Show up early. Keep your word no matter what it costs. Don't be known for starting and stopping projects. Carry stuff all the way through. Get it done. Don't be passive. Don't avoid the hard conflict but don't love it either. Stand for something. Winston Churchill said this, you have enemies, good. That means you've stood for something sometime in your life. Bring your world into dominion. Genesis one and two says men rule and subdue creation, which includes your garage your car, your closet, your desk, your yard, your dorm room, young men, your mind, your instrument, and your workspace. A life characterized by constant disorder and tardiness is a life of passivity, which is the opposite of masculinity. And remember, men, despite what the world says, you really matter. Decide what the Barbie movie communicates. You matter. You matter. Children from fatherless homes are seven times more likely to live in poverty, six times more likely to to commit crime, more than twice as likely to commit suicide, more than twice as likely to become pregnant out of wedlock, worse off academically and socially, worse off physically and emotionally when they reach adulthood. Men, you matter. Be masculine for the glory of God by the grace of God. And when you fail, God forgives. Back to where we started. One young man stepped into a bar and shot and killed several people. 
In the crowd that night was another young man, 20-year-old Matt Wennerstrom, who emerged as the hero of the hour. As soon as shots began booming through the bar, he and about seven other young men grabbed as many people as they could and pushed them under a pool table for cover. Then they piled their own bodies over them to protect them from the hail of gunfire. When the shooter paused to reload, Matt and his friends threw bar stools through a back window and began shepherding people outside. Repeatedly, the young men rushed back into the bar to steer more people to safety. This was the story of two young men. The first young man used his masculine strength to take lives. Toxic masculinity. But the second young man used his masculine strength to protect and save lives. How will you, men, use your masculine strength? Let's pray together.